Next on Book TV's Afterwards, Alabama Democratic Senator Doug Jones recounts his prosecution of two former KKK members involved in the 1963 Birmingham church bombing that killed four black girls. He's interviewed by author and journalist Diane McWhirter. Afterwards is a weekly interview program with relevant guest hosts interviewing top nonfiction authors about their latest work. Senator Jones, hello. Hey, Diane. Nice to see you again. It's great to see you. It's funny for you to call me Senator, though. I, it is funny. Yeah. I'm, I'm kind of biting my tongue. Um, <laughs> so, uh, DJ. Uh, Martin Luther King said of Rosa Parks that the zeitgeist had tracked her down. And it seems like history has tapped you on the shoulder a couple of times, yeah. not counting the 1972 Kiwanis Boy of the Year, <laughs> Youth of the Year, Youth of the, year. the Kiwanis Club Youth of the Year in Birmingham, Alabama. Right. So um, I wanted to talk about the uh, when you were Bill Clinton's U.S. Attorney in Birmingham, something a big case fell in your lap. It did. It was actually opened about a year before I became, and it was just like it was. Below the radar, I think the FBI spent a lot of time going, reviewing all the files, and it just was opened up right before I became the U.S. attorney, and, uh, you know, which was really remarkable considering that I had sat in on one of the cases earlier, 24 years earlier, actually. So this was the, 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 one of the worst terrorist attacks of the civil rights era. Absolutely. Uh, the, six, the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church on September 15, 1963, yep. where four black Sunday school girls were killed. And um, there had been a, one conviction of the Klansman, of the man thought to be the ringleader, Dynamite Bob Chambliss, in 1977. Right. And since then, nada, really. Occasionally, the case was reopened. But what, so what, what got it reopened again for you, good? You know, there was a couple of things that I think happened. Um, you remember back in the, in the late 80s, I think that the Justice Department really kind of targeted some black public officials in the South as a way to maybe change some political dynamics. And the, the first black mayor of Birmingham uh, was targeted for investigation. He was never prosecuted. Richard Arrington. Richard Arrington. Mm -hmm. He was never prosecuted. But it created a lot of animosity in the, between the black community and the Department of Justice, which had traditionally, for, you know, for so long, had been, um, had been f more than just friendly. I mean, they were somewhat dependent... Uh, on the Justice Department to help with school desegregation and other things. And a new uh, FBI agent in charge of Birmingham came in and wanted to change that, wanted to, to kind of smooth those, uh, uh, mend those fences, uh, Rob Langford. And mm -hmm. he came in, he started going to some of the churches and meeting with folks, and finally ended up with a meeting with some of the black leaders. And by this time, you know, the Medgar Evers murder, um, Byron Dela Beckwith had been convicted in Mississippi. Uh, I think Vernon Damer had uh, been convicted. And those leaders asked Rob about reopening in the church bombing case uh, mm -hmm. because they always believed, despite the one conviction, there were others. And he said, you know, we'll take a look at it. And he did, saw some possibilities, got my friend Carol Privet, who was the acting U.S. attorney at the time, uh, to authorize it, got with the attorney general, Janet Reno, uh, and they just started that investigation. And it was really based on that effort between the Department of Justice and the African-American community into Birmingham to mend some fences, mm -hmm. that we got this thing Yeah, going. I hadn't realized it, it had come out, because uh, a lot of the Reagan Justice Department um, prosecutions were centered in Birmingham, in Alabama. Absolutely. The voter, the voter fraud cases and, yep. and the black belt and everything. Well, you know, I had been working on this baby about uh, the history of Birmingham, uh, civil rights era, leading to the church bombing for 18 years. Right. When I got a call in my kitchen, I was standing in my kitchen, got a phone call from a friend who worked at CBS, saying that they had indicted two people in the church bombing. <laughs> and my first thought was, uh, was, oh, my God, this is the greatest thing that's happened in my life. And my second thought was, I hope we have the same people, yes. the same bombers. Yeah. And, and we did because, actually, the, um, the four or five chief suspects had been named within days. Oh, yeah. So you yeah. want to talk about that? Yeah, I mean, clearly, um, clearly the FBI and most of the law enforcement really had a pretty good idea uh, who these culprits were uh, early on. You just couldn't get the evidence. I mean, it was a lot of informant information that came to the FBI in those days, uh, not evidence that could be used in a court of law. Uh, there was a, a lot of infor informants, including Chambliss's wife. T. Chambliss was a, a, an informant. Um, but those cases, and despite an incredible effort by the FBI, they just couldn't bring those cases. Uh, a jury would not have convicted on the on the weakness of those cases. So, yeah, it took... It took a while. I think it took a lot of new, um, I think it took a change in attitude 
uh, to some extent with the juries, but also I think it was a, a, a time and, and people looked at it and you had a whole new generation of prosecutors and investigators who knew that that wrong had been committed and, and decided to try to right it. Mm -hmm. And as surprised as you were, I was pretty surprised when that book was announced, you know, like six weeks before I had to select a jury in Birmingham, Alabama. And this was all about the, the climactic struggle for civil rights. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, you know, I'm never going to get a jury. And um, fortunately, your book is a lot lo longer than mine, and folks couldn't read it in that short a period. Thanks, Doug. <laughs> um, yeah, well, the two, so the two suspects were Bobby Frank Cherry and Tommy Blanton, right. who had been part of this, the same Klan cell, which had thought the regular Klan had kind of gone soft. Yeah. And they had broken off into this kind of rump group. Yep, called the Cahaba River Bridge Boys. They would meet underneath a bridge. I called them like a bunch of trolls, mm -hmm. is what I uh, refer to them in the, in the book. And they would meet under this uh, the Cahaba River Bridge, which was a beautiful little river that runs just south of Birmingham. Uh, and that's where they would meet. They would get away because remember, and you know this as well as anybody, the uh, there were a lot of there were a lot of informants in the Klan during those days. The FBI had folks everywhere, and they didn't trust anybody. And so they would meet thinking that, that was, they couldn't be recorded, that wouldn't be seen. That's where this bomb plot was really hatched out. And, and Chambliss was that leader. Blanton was always there. Cherry was always there, along with a number of other people who had passed away by the time we started our investigation. Mm -hmm. and, and Robert Chambliss had been a, he, he, as I said, was known as Dynamite Bob. He was yeah. so well known as a, as a bomber. He was thought to be responsible for a lot of the, house bombings in the late 40s, early right. 50s that had given Birmingham the nickname Bombingham. And um, he was prosecuted by a, an attorney general in Alabama in 1977. Um, you had a meeting with uh, Abraham Woods, who was a um, kind of, a, I think of him as the legacy leader of Martin Luther King yeah. in Birmingham. He had been part of Martin Luther King's Southern Christian Leadership Conference, right. and he was kind of handling the direct action end of things yeah. of, the, of the movement by then. And you had a conversation with him early on that, that helped you frame the narrative that you were going to present to the jury, but also helped you understand uh, some of the, it laid to rest some of the controversies about the, yeah. the intent of the bombers and everything. A absolutely. Um, you know, I, I had sat through as a law student in 1977. I was a second-year law student at Cumberland Law School in Birmingham, and I had cut classes to go watch the Baxley trial. And it was remarkable to, you know, to to witness that trial at the time, sitting in the balcony to watch. And so in that trial, there was evidence that the bomb didn't go off when it was supposed to, that there no one was supposed to get hurt. There was testimony that Chambliss uh, had made that comment, and they, they used that. There was testimony about a fishing bobber-type fuse that was a delayed, and it just didn't work the right way. Because mm -hmm, it, so, it ended up going off at 10.20 in the morning. 10.20 right? in the morning, mm -hmm. and so there was just kind of this... I think, historical, anecdotal evidence that people assumed that it didn't go off when it was supposed to, that no one was supposed to get hurt because despite the number of bombings that, that caused Birmingham to have the uh, nickname Bombingham, there really had not been any deaths or any very really serious injuries. There had been some injuries, but not incredibly serious injuries. And so... After Blanton and Cherry were indicted, and we indicted those, even though I was U.S. attorney, they were indicted over in state court for a number of reasons. Under Alabama law, uh, Judge Garrett gave them bond. They made bond, and they were released uh, pending trial. And a number of folks were not happy about that. They, you know, and they were making comments in the newspaper that these men had been walking the streets free after killing these four girls, and in effect, basically convicting them. And for a lawyer and as a prosecutor, that was going to be very problematic for us because if, if we had gotten to a jury selection and enough people had believed that at the time and couldn't put that aside, then the case would have been moved. Venue would have been changed. We would have gone four or five hours probably down to Mobile or up to Huntsville. And these cases needed to be tried in, uh, in Birmingham. So I called Chris Hamlin, who was the minister of the church at that time, and, and told him my dilemma. He said, let me get some folks together. And he got Reverend Woods and a number of the other uh, uh, ministers, uh, you know, um, uh, from around the area, the leading ministers of the day. And we met in the conference room at the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute, and I kind of laid out my case. I got, got no com real commitment from them, as you would expect. They just, they all were very, very, they listened intently and said that they would just let the spirit move them. And fortunately, 
for me, the Spirit moved them in a way that I think calmed those waters a little bit. And did, did you feel that they were holding you responsible at all? Oh, no, 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 not, not at all. Yeah. They, I, I was just explaining to the law mm-hmm. with them, and I, I said, I'm not going to tell you what to say and not say. I just can tell you what might happen. Mm-hmm. And, and after that, they, they, we didn't hear the same information at all, which was great. But toward the end of that conversation, Reverend Woods looked at me and he said, Doug, do you think that this bomb w- went off when it was supposed to, that it was designed to either hurt or kill people? And I gave him the historical accounts of what we had, the evidence had been, how things had developed over the years. And he said, I'm very disappointed to hear you say that, uh-huh. which was incredibly, you know, it was like a dagger here because uh-huh. we had gotten such, I mean, we were, it was really such a big deal for the community that we even indicted those cases. And I said, well, what do you mean? And he went on to explain that there were two bombs that exploded at Center Street in Birmingham. Um, not long after, I think it was only two or three weeks after that, one was a decoy bomb mm-hmm. to get people out, and the second bomb had nails in it, so that it was clearly designed to hurt. And Reverend Woods looked, he said, we believed at that point, because there had not been any injuries or, or, or deaths, and because the movement was growing with, with Dr. King's speech, uh, in on the mall and and things like that, that we believed that the Klan felt like that they had to take somebody's life, that they had to hurt or kill people, and uh, you know a light just came on at that point, and I thought that makes perfect sense, especially in light of what happened. Well, and, and, and you, we adopted that. That's and then exactly. you and you tied it to the uh, you were able to the motive was to stop the desegregation of the schools Absolutely. that was going on. Absolutely. And that, five days before, I think. Right, and that and then that gives you the whole. Uh, theme of the trials, which you was bet. children. Absolutely. No question. It was the year of the child. Fire hoses and dogs in April of the, in May of that year uh, in Birmingham, which started that whole process. The school integration, hope was alive in many quarters, but for some people in Birmingham, they were seeing their segregated way of life sliding away, and they had to take matters into their own hands. And we decided as a team that we would focus that on children, and we would focus on the fact that we believe that the Klan intended to do this, and we dared any of the old Klansmen that were still alive, including the defendants, to tell us otherwise, and they never did. Yeah, and do you think um, if, if people had been, if a jury had been allowed to think that maybe they didn't really mean to kill them, that they, would have, they might have been more lenient? I don't think so. I, I don't think that, you know, g- given the nature of the evidence and given the nature of the jury charges at the time, that mm-hmm. if you use some kind of deadly device like that, you just can't accidentally... Uh, kill someone. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, it was the nature of the evidence regardless, uh, but you never know. I mean, but we wanted to make sure that from our standpoint, we didn't let up. We wanted to keep the pressure on. Mm-hmm. So, um, the, uh, yeah, because the best, the best scenario was that the bomb had been planted at around two in the morning. Yes. And that the timing device was, was set for whenever. Yeah. Um, but, and that, and the, the thinking was that uh, the FBI's best thinking was that Bobby Frank Cherry had actually planted the bomb. That right? was that was some informant information that they had. Some of that's been a little bit discredited, so we really don't know. I know uh, it's so weird that we really don't know. No, what we happened. really don't. The closest thing that we know about about that is that there was a witness who saw Tommy Blanton's car parked behind the church about two o'clock mm-hmm. in the morning, and the dome light was on, and she identified three men in there, not four. She identified three. And one of them was Robert Chambliss. She couldn't identify the other, but she identified Tommy Blanton's automobile. And so we really don't know. One of the, the great disappointments I have in the case is not being able to drill down and, and to get the admissions and to get the statements about the very specifics of where that bomb was made, who made it, who carried it, when it was planted, the whole real, you know, the down to the let, uh, nitty-gritty of mm-hmm. that. We couldn't get that. We had enough evidence to prove these guys' guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, but not enough to really get there. And that was a, that was a little bit disappointing, and I've talked to both Blanton and Cherry when his, uh, he was alive to try to get that, and they just completely refused. Do you think there's some psychological um, mechanism by which they convince oh, yeah. themselves that they didn't do it, though? Yeah, I, 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 yes, I think for whatever reason um, that their roles might have been that they've convinced themselves that they were not guilty, that they weren't there. I think that they have just tuned it. Again, remember, with no one having died, the fact that this ended up killing four children had to weigh on people. And I think that they have just put up, they just put up that block. 
Cherry, maybe not so much. He was a pretty arrogant guy. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, he bragged about it, and that was part of our evidence of him bragging about it. I think he was just kind of defiant to the end. Uh, And it was just a basically, hell no, uh, I'm not going to let you get it. He thought he had gotten away with it for so, so long. Mm -hmm. So getting into the details of the case, um, Hannah Arendt, when she was writing about the Eichmann trial in Jerusalem, said that the horrible can be not only ludicrous, but sometimes downright funny. Yeah. And there there was quite a bit of laughter in those trials. Um, That's a fair amount. Yeah, because of just the kind of ludicrousness of some of the stuff. So let's talk about some of the witnesses um, that, uh, well, let's talk about, first of all, Birmingham is known as the, it was nicknamed the city of perpetual promise in the 30s because it's always seemed on the verge of, of greatness and it never, it, it always kept getting pulled back. And in this case, what was to be the, the trials of the last two living suspects in the Birmingham church bombing ends up being the trial of the, one of the last two because Bobby Frank Cherry at the last minute is yeah, that declared that, incompetent. Yeah, yeah, that that was one of the more bizarre things in this. Uh, we indicted these cases. Uh, there were two. There were separate indictments for Cherry and Blanton, but we knew under Alabama law that we had a very good chance of trying them together, and that was what we had planned. We were set to go to trial in April of two thousand and one, uh, and at the very last minute, unbeknownst to us, Cherry's defense team, and they did a you know, very, very good job defending. All of these lawyers, defense lawyers, did uh, a wonderful job of defending their clients. They were, you know, really did a good job. Um, Cherry's, unbeknownst to us, had presented some things to the court to get some uh, funds to have him evaluated. And at the last minute, they came in with a couple experts who said Cherry was not competent to stand trial. Now, that doesn't mean he was insane at the time of the offense, where he didn't understand right or wrong. It means that he didn't understand the nature and consequences of the proceedings and couldn't assist with his own defense. And so at that point, we had to sever the two cases, went to trial uh, on Blanton, got that conviction, and then had to deal with the cherry competency issue in which it was just a battle of the experts over the course of that summer. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, you know, fortunately or fortunately, I, I think it, as it turned out, it was probably a good thing for us that, Judge Garrett initially ruled that Cherry was incompetent. We, our, it was our burden to prove that he was competent. And that's not always an easy burden to do because our experts were saying he's faking it. Mm-hmm. He was just simply faking it. So, but the judge was smart enough when he ruled he was not competent, was smart enough to put him into custody. He said for up to 90 days. Actually, stays 70 days. And you can fake your dementia for an hour or an hour and a half, mm-hmm. you can't, can't fake it for 70 days. Right. There were videos of him talking to people, exercising, and then the conversations that he would have with the, uh, with the psychiatrist, with the other folks there, which just got incredibly, that was, it did get comical. I mean, when, when you have someone who's an expert who says, I'm going to give him a memory test, and even folks who are severely handicapped, almost comatose, can score a 15, right. and he scores a 7, you got to work at it right. to do that. And yeah. so the judge ruled him. Ultimately, it had been restored to competency miraculously. Yeah. And we went to trial a year later after Blanton. A year later. So with Blanton, um, the, I, I, was, I remember I was kind of surprised that um, you, you got an indictment or you were going to trial without proof to be the key evidence, which you said uh, is, the, is the tape that you said it will be running through your head on your right. deathbed. Yeah. And that was, let, let's talk about that a little bit because that, sure. was, that was the clincher in a way. Well, we got the indictment and the indictment was in part based, uh, I think, on the pieces of the puzzle. That's what we described this. And it was really a lot on the strength of, of one particular witness, James Lay. James Lay was a phenomenal witness for us. He was a, a civil defense. He was a volunteer civil defense guy. That's what they called themselves. African-American. African-American. He worked at the post office. But at night, he would, with others, go around and try to protect the homes uh, of the civil rights leaders uh, and, and protect the churches. And two weeks before the bombing, he sees someone at 1 o'clock in the morning outside 16th Street, two people. One he identified as being Chamless. The other, who was standing over by the steps with what he called a grip, um, was Tommy Blanton. And when he hit his bright lights, this is 1 o'clock in the morning, he, they take off, and he identified him. Um, 
He was a really absolutely phenomenal witness in front of our grand jury. He was older. He was not in great health, soft-spoken. For a lawyer, the kind of witness that people just lean into uh, to hear. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, he had a stroke right before um, the trial, and we knew that while we were going to get that evidence in, we've lost that kind of presence. But fortunately for us, about two or three months before the, the trial, after the bomb, I mean, after the indictments were returned, when we were going through all of these tape recordings, we found the, the tape, the kitchen sink tape that had been placed under the Blanton kitchen sink. Mm-hmm. The FBI had, had put a plant there in, right. in 1964, put a, I think. Put right? a bug. Put a bug. You know, one uh, of the el- famous J. Edgar Hoover electronic bugs. Yeah. And uh, so why don't you tell us what was on that tape? Well, by this time, Blanton had married his uh, girlfriend at the time. Who was a teenager at the who time. Who was a teenager at the time. They got married about six months later, uh, and they were living in Birmingham. And uh, a, the FBI got one of their... Uh, not an agent. He worked in their electronic surveillance uh, group, but he was not an FBI agent to pose as a truck driver. And they rented an apartment next to Blanton's, and they tore out a wall, and underneath the kitchen sink, in a hole by the kitchen sink, they placed a microphone that then went to a telephone line that went back to the FBI office where they recorded these conversations. It was placed there on the authority of J. Edgar Hoover, uh, which he had the authority to do at the time, but there was a question whether you could use that evidence, you know, in a trial as opposed to just for fact-finding. And in that tape, uh, Jean, his wife, uh, is talking about the weekend and where Tommy was. And it it was a very, very Southern uh, accent. And she was saying, it's where you were that that night that you stood me up because he had stood her up on Friday night. This was the Friday night before the bombing. Before the bombing. Mm -hmm. Clearly they were talking about that weekend. Everybody knew which weekend. And Blanton, in his own words, says three times that we were making the bomb, planning the bomb, or we with, with, with the group planning the bomb. Uh, it was an incredible moment um, to, to, to find that tape, number one, to be able to get it into evidence and to hear these guys talking about it in such a cavalier way because he was more worried about, you know, the shirt he was, he was going to wear. Out, yeah, does his shirt look okay? I, exactly. Yeah. And he was more worried about the fact that, you know, he didn't want his wife to know he was you know, um, catting around on her as opposed to making a bomb well, yeah. that ultimately killed four, four children. And importantly in that, that tape as well, and there's a transcript of it in the book here, um, and we talk about it a lot because it was so important. And the transcript will show you at the end of that conversation, she admits that she lied to the FBI, and she had been his alibi. Mm-hmm. And that was an important part of the story that we weave in the book and then she, we come back and we play that tape, and at the end of it, she admits that she lies to the FBI. So now she's completely blown as a witness. Her credibility is gone. We don't call her as a witness, and Blanton's uh, team doesn't call her as a witness. And we're able to prove his car was seen plenty enough time uh, at 2 o'clock to take her home. Mm-hmm. It's pretty amazing. That that tape was was something that you just have, have to listen to that kind of screeching voice. Yeah, 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 yeah. We won't do it. We won't do it. Yeah, we can't do it justice. Um, yeah, one of the, I mean, one of the kind of interesting things about the, and this is just true of the South, that pe- people who aren't from there, they expect, expect to come there and see, you know, the sidewalks with, with police dogs about to t- right. attack people. And when you're there, even at the time, it's right. everybody's pretty civil. And the, yeah. and the atmosphere of the trial was, was, Kind of, um, uh, kind of unsettlingly intimate, you know. Yeah. Like I, I remember it, you and 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 um, Blanton's court-appointed lawyer had been law partners and yeah, good friends. Yeah, one of my one of my best friends, John Robbins. He still is. Uh-huh. Uh, we were. I joined his firm with uh, uh, Mark Polson at the at a time uh, when John was just starting out, and we worked together on a lot of cases. And he got that. We had my wife Louise and I had just had dinner with he and his wife just like two weeks before the appointment. We were talking about it some, and then all of a sudden he gets in. But, you know, that, 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 it really was important, uh, not only in that case, but, but Mickey Johnson and Roger Bass, who defended uh, Bobby Cherry. There was an element of a trust among the lawyers, and there was an element of respect among the lawyers. This was just not a scorched-earth defense or a scorched-earth prosecution. And when you do that, I think justice has an, a, a lot easier time of coming to the fore. And so there was, we, we worked uh, well, we gave them documents, we helped give them whatever they needed for the defense, 
we fought over motions. We fought over what tapes were coming in. But at the end of the day, there was a, a, an element of respect that I think served the justice system very well in those two cases. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, did you feel... I know that w- when, I, when I saw... Uh, when I was pregnant with my first daughter and I saw films of childbirth, I cried. But when I was going through the childbirth, I didn't because I was so focused on what was going on and like just getting it, making it happen. Is that kind of what it was like? I have the- no idea what childbirth is like, uh, <laughs> Diane. So, I mean, I, I, I cannot really <laughs> compare that that way. But I will tell you that we were focused. Yeah. Uh, you know, for, for a couple of months leading up to this trial, I would get up really early, 5 o'clock or so, which is early for me to get up in the morning, and I'd have a, a, a binder. We had so much evidence, so many binders. And I would bring one home, and I would try to go through as much as I can. I just wanted to make sure there was not something else that, that, that we missed. Mm-hmm. And when we got there and we got into the trial, we had a you know, a really good jury uh, consultants uh, and trial consultants that helped us, Andy Sheldon from Atlanta, Steve Patterson and Norma Silverstein from L.A. in the Blanton case. Andy also worked with us in Cherry um, that helped us kind of, Get the jury in in the in the way that we wanted to get a jury. Yeah, let's talk. Let's talk about some of the surprises in in the in the research that you found. Well, there was a you know the, I think the the biggest it's not wasn't a really a surprise to us, but we were relieved to find that people really supported the prosecutions in this case. We did a, a, a community attitude surveys where it was a, like a phone poll. We did a couple of focus groups. Uh, we did um, uh, jury questionnaires for the jury itself. And what we found that's, is that the public in Jefferson County, Alabama, which is where Birmingham is, really believed that the case ought to be prosecuted if there was the evidence. They didn't want us to do it to, to prove a point. But if the evidence was there, that was number one. We saw that the Klan was in low esteem uh, in, in Birmingham. Uh, but we also saw that people wholeheartedly supported school integration which was an important part of this story. I think it's an important part of the civil rights movement because it was, it was the Brown versus Board decision that prompted Fred Shuttlesworth in 1957 to try to enroll his kids. Uh, and he got beat up. Into an all-white high school. Into an all-white high mm-hmm. school in downtown Birmingham. He got be- met and beaten up uh, by a group of, of, of white men, one of whom was Bobby Frank Cherry, and he had no kids at that school. So we've, we saw a lot of things like that that, that really gave us uh, a lot of hope that we could get a jury that was going to be fair, uh, and that's all we asked, if they, because we believed all along if a jury looked at these cases fairly and objectively, we would, we would get convictions. And were you worried about, uh, talk about what happened with uh, Mr. Lay before t- trial and a number of the witnesses were, were it was kind of touch and go as to it, whether it, they were going to survive. It, it was. We saw uh, there were a couple of witnesses that uh, died during the course of the investigation. Obviously, there had been several that had died ahead of time, but there were a couple that died in the middle of the investigation, um, yeah, including Gary Thomas Rowe, who was a infamous informant and who many thought may have been involved or at least knew some information. So we got these cases ready, and Mr. Lay has the stroke right before trial, I mean like five, a month before trial. And we ended up not uh, calling him. I was going to call him as a witness uh, because I talked to his doctors and his nurses, He and we had his grand jury testimony, and the evidence, uh, rules of evidence would have allowed me to call him and just read him the question and his answers and ask him if that was true at the time. He right, and he it. could just say yes and or And he no. could not, mm-hmm. and of course the defense could do very little on cross. Mm -hmm. We got into the trial, though, and uh, like so many of the FBI agents who had pounded the streets of Birmingham, we'd gotten calls from these guys. And one of the people that we had found was Agent Frank Spencer. He was living in Tampa. He had interviewed Blanton in 1963, two weeks after the bombing, and Blanton had lied about his whereabouts. Couldn't remember where he was until he called his girlfriend, Jean, and got their stories together. So those lies were going to be a very important part. Mm-hmm. On the, the other, his whereabouts yeah. on the eve of the bombing. So yeah. we're in trial now, and I've got both. Uh, I've got our jury seated. Uh, Jeopardy is attached. We're going to call Mr. Lay. We're going to bring him up there and have him testify. And I get into about two days of trial, and my agent, Bill Fleming, lead case agent, says, Doug, we got another problem. Agent Spencer was being driven up from Birmingham, uh, from Tampa to Birmingham. And 90 miles south of Birmingham in Montgomery, they think he's had some kind of heart failure. He's in intensive care. And so you know, as a lawyer, 
Here's the biggest case that we've done ever in, in the state, probably. And I got a star witness in a nursing home and the other star witness in on intensive care. And that's a pretty, that was trying on me. Agent Spencer ended up being okay. Um, what was really great about that is the doctor who he had never met before in Montgomery, Alabama, when he found out who he was and what he was going to do, canceled everything he was doing the next day. He and his wife, who was a nurse, came to Birmingham with Agent Spencer, sat through his testimony. We had behind us, uh, Judge Buhacker had canceled court that day just for us so that we could put two paramedics and a crash cart there mm-hmm. for Agent Spencer just in case something happened. He gets off the stand. He does an incredible job. I think he's the oldest FBI agent to ever testify. He gets off the stand, and we get worried about Mr. Lay, so that's when we call his friend, um, Shelly Stewart, who was a radio personality. Yeah, he was involved in the demonstrations, giving signals to the kids. Giving Mm -hmm. signals to the kids, as Shelly the the Playboy Stewart, uh, to read that testimony. So, you know, to have all these people go to the extraordinary efforts that they did to come forward, and and it was some of the, the, not, it was Agent Spencer, but it was some of the other retired agents that came from all over the country. Uh, It was other folks, like, like, Willa Dean Brogdon in the, uh, in the uh, Cherry case, who was Cherry's ex-wife. It was Waylene Vaughn, uh, not Waylene Vaughn, Miss Vaughn, who, yeah, Waylene Vaughn, who uh, testified in the Blanton case. I mean, those yeah, let's, were... Let's some... talk about Waylene for a second, because she, was, she had been Tommy's, uh, Tommy Blanton's girlfriend right. and had been on some of his joy rides when he's g- going to run over a black pedestrian right. or, you know... Scare her to death. Yeah, and um, I know it's a, it's, a very, it's a very poignant scene in the book where you seem to have some slight misgivings about exposing her to this. Well, I did. Um, at least... She had had kind a, of a hard life. She'd and... had a tough life. You know, I'll never forget going down there. We, we were... we, FBI did a, a great job of finding her. She was living in a, a small mobile home in South Alabama. And we didn't tell her we were coming because we didn't know what kind of reaction we would get. And, and just as an aside, she she was the one who Jean, the future uh, wife, right. thought he was cheating on her with, which she, he was. Which he was, yeah. yes. Uh, that there was on the tape. I thought you were going out with Waylene, and he did, and he did that night. So we went down there, and Bill Fleming and I walked up. We had the two FBI sedans in the back, and she's standing on her little porch in front of this little mobile home. And I walk up and I say, Ms. Vaughn, my name is Doug Jones. I'm the U.S. attorney in Birmingham. And she just nodded her head and she said, I've been expecting you, Mr. Jones. Mm-hmm. And she went on to talk about those joy rides where he would try to run over uh, a black man cross in the street and scare her. She would talk about he, he would stop uh, at a grocery store in the black neighborhoods and he would go in with a little vial of some kind of acid or something and pour it on, on the meat. It was just a, just a really uh, hateful uh, man. But because of their relationship, uh, we knew she would withstand some pretty serious cross-examination, and she did. It was embarrassing for her mm-hmm. about going out and spending uh, the night with him and where they would go and what they would do from a, a sexual standpoint. It was very embarrassing for her, but she did. She stayed strong. All of our witnesses stayed very strong. They were amazing. And she kind of had reason to worry if you had gotten a conviction, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think uh, anybody would have. Now, fortunately, you know, we didn't hear any... We didn't see any complaints. We didn't hear any any threats against anybody. But we always worried that should there be uh, a, a, an acquittal in this, you know, what kind of reprisals may be out there. And certainly she was worried about that. Mm-hmm. You know what's kind of mind-blowing now is that one of the themes of the trial, including that you didn't get any threats the whole time, right, right? that um, everybody in the courtroom was so, um, there was that, that kind of intimacy that um, that here was the weirdest thing. All the Klan witnesses got up there and swore under oath that they had never harbored any ill will toward African Americans. Oh, it was unbelievable. So, um, and finally, John Robbins, Blanton's lawyer, who's from Trenton, New Jersey, right. said, well, Martin Luther King's job would have been a lot easier if he had known that, if he had only known my client was the only segregationist right. in Birmingham. Right. It, so yeah. you look at that, where this friend of mine calls it the myth of the interracial handshake, that we all, we all want to believe that we were, you know, yeah. actually right-thinking people back then. And then you look at now, yeah. and it seems, you know, it seems almost amazing that what you, the jury research found out that like 85% of people believed in integration. and Absolutely. Yeah. At least that's what they said. You know, and it was, it, that, that was interesting from the Klan. The other thing, 
you know, that we talk about in the book with, with the cherry, uh, the cherry trial mm-hmm. was he called character witnesses. Blanton didn't do that. Cherry called a couple of character witnesses, including a grandson who said he'd never heard his grandfather say anything like that because we had a granddaughter who talked about his admissions and bragging about it. But then Cherry called his preacher uh, that he had been going to this little country uh, uh, church uh, in Texas, and the preacher said "It it is a church that has blacks, it has Mexicans, and Cherry has been going, he interacts with people, and he doesn't seem to harbor any, any will, or anything like that. And of course, on cross-examination, though, he it, the preacher it admitted that he had used racial slurs on any number of occasions. But more importantly for me as a prosecutor, he admitted that Cherry didn't start coming to church until after this investigation had been reopened. And, you know, certainly he started finding God when he thought he was about to go to prison. So there was no so he's, yeah, so there he's, was no credibility to any of that. Right. So he's using a church in order to get get away with destroying a church. Absolutely. So the echoes are just horrific. There there are any number of ironies in this case. Yeah. Um yeah, I just uh yeah, so um the uh let's talk a little bit about the the difference between there was a big difference between the two trials because yeah. In the in the intervening year, nine eleven had happened. Yeah, and you know the t- the co- trials were different in and of themselves. I mean, with Blanton, you had that tape recording, which we also played in the Cherry case for a different under a different theory, but that was Blanton's own voice. And you had you had Miss Miss Vaughn. You had uh, other people that kind of put pieces of a puzzle together for him that really showed his guilt. But he didn't talk about it very much. We had no real admissions except on that one tape recording. Cherry was a lot different, uh, who boasted about it over the years. He just he knew he was going to get away with it, and he boasted about being part of the group that bombed that church. Mm-hmm. What was really interesting from a community standpoint, we never heard any, any um, we never got any threats, nothing remotely uh, like that. We heard some folks, mainly can some conservative talk radio that was like, oh, gosh, why don't we just move on? Why do we have oh, to yeah, see Oh, yeah, that's always the, yeah. You know, why don't we have to see the fire Open hose and the dogs again? We've, we, we're, we're different, and we were, but, you know, why do we have to examine that again? But between the Blanton trial and the Cherry trial was 9-11. And after uh, 9-11, you sure didn't hear any voices saying you should not prosecute an old terrorist any time that you uh, have a chance to do that. You just didn't hear that at all. Yeah, and I, th- I think it gave, in a strange way, gave people empathy for uh, how, how African Americans felt. Absolutely. Just by, just by living, you know, that now that everybody, you know, that w- when America feels under attack. Yeah, there's no question about that. And I, I had, uh, p- people never saw the church bombing, I don't think, until then, a- except for, you know, academics and historians and folks that write about it like you and I did or prosecute it like I did, um, they never saw that 1963 bombing as an act of terrorism, mm-hmm. and it was. And I said that in May in the Blanton opening statement. Mm-hmm. I said it was an act of terrorism before the word terrorism really was the part of our language mm-hmm. like this. Well, that really came home to roost in, after 9-11, and people realized that. Uh, and, you know, we had seen that to some extent with Eric Rudolph in 1998, which we talk about as well a little bit in the book. Right, Eric Rudolph, the abortion clinic bomber in Birmingham. Right. That was your, you, got, you got taken off the church bombing case because of that. Uh, five months into my tenure, the Eric Rudolph bomb exploded at the women's clinic there in Birmingham. And uh, we had to shut this investigation down for a few months so that we could put that case together again, which is a, another whole potential book probably, mm-hmm. but it's a, a different subject for sure. And interestingly, you felt more um, endangered oh, because yeah. of his family than, than anything. Well, not, not his family as much, but just the, you know, there were some people that were supportive of mm-hmm. him and that had voiced that, were continuing to voice that. And, you know, here was a, a guy who killed uh, a police officer. And in fact, we were able to prove um, that he used a remote control to detonate that just as a police officer was looking uh, at the bomb. You know, I don't spend a lot of time on it, but it was a pretty remarkable story of how we came to build a case that allowed us to ultimately prosecute him for that women's clinic bombing as well as a clinic in Atlanta, a gay nightclub in Atlanta, 
and the Olympic Park bombing that occurred in 1996. Right, that was blamed on Richard Jewell. Yep, yeah, it was initially blamed on Jewell. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, let's talk a little bit about the uh, Willa Dean Brogdon, um, one of the, the witnesses against Cherry, right. who had been his ex-wife. Yes. So she was. Just talk about how you found her. Well, she found us. Uh, right. I mean, when I first became the U.S. Attorney in 1997. And I met with my agents, uh, Bill Fleming and Ben Heron, were just incredible investigators. Um, and they were going through what they had. It was still early on in the public phase of the trial. And they were telling me that they had talked to some family members. They had some other leads that they were looking at. But the one thing that they had been searching for for a year was a woman named Willa Dean, who Cherry had married in the early 70s. They had met as truck drivers. She was a driver, so was he. They lived together for a while, and then they got married. Then they got divorced. It, it didn't last too long. It was a, two or three years, I think. But they couldn't find her. They had searched high and low for this woman and could not find her. And I asked what all they had done, and they had looked, you know, death records, you name it. They had gone from one end of the country, and I thought it was ironic that the modern FBI couldn't find a 70-something-year-old woman here in the United States of America. But what happened was in the fall of 1998, after we finally got our our sea legs back uh, after the Rudolph bombing, we started some grand jury. And it was, a, it was, despite grand jury secrecy, everybody knew what was going on. In federal court, witnesses can actually talk about their testimony. And we had, we used the federal grand jury. And it was, it was fairly public that we were conducting this grand jury uh, into the church bombing. They knew it had been opened. Uh, and a, a reporter from um, um, Mississippi, Jerry Mitchell, who was with the, Cl the Clarion Ledger at the time, came over, did a story about reopening uh, the case. He had covered any number of cases and had helped reopen them, as a matter of fact, in Mississippi. And that story hit the wire surfaces. This was bef before the Internet as we know it today. And it hit wire surfaces when it appeared in a, a small-town newspaper in Glendive, Montana. And Willa Dean, the woman, the mystery woman that nobody could find, picked up that paper, read it, saw it, called the FBI and said, I'm coming to see you. I know something about this. I was married to this guy. Drove 200 miles to the local FBI agent to talk, uh, office to talk about the fact that she was married to Cherry and that he, at one point, when the car broke down, he pointed to the place over by the church where he said that they planted the bomb. It's a rem remarkable story. She was an interesting she was interesting. Her, her appearance on the stand, as I recall, was complicated by the fact that she had restless leg syndrome. Well, she was restless just in general, and she gave the defense lawyer a tough time. She, yeah. at, at, at one point, she basically asked him if he'd been paying attention with her answers. So, and maybe he ought to take notes. And maybe he ought to take notes. Yeah. That's exactly right yeah. uh, on this. She, was really, she drove from um, Montana, where she was living. She was afraid to fly. We, had, we paid her mileage. Uh, and she talked about Cherry. A lot of these old Klansmen, as you know, were were abusers uh, to their to their spouses. And he had done that. He had uh, she had left him and moved to Chicago once. He found her, came back. But when they moved, the fun the funny story to me was when she said that she had made up her mind to leave him, and they were moving back from Chicago to Birmingham, and she was in her car with her kids in the back, and that as she pulled into Birmingham, she pulled up at either her sister's or his sister's house. And she said, Bob got out and slammed the door and I slammed the gas and yeah. I never looked back. So she was, she was amazing. <laughs> it was an amazing. And she introduced us to her brother, who was also an interesting character, and her nephew, who also testified about Cherry's admissions mm -hmm. uh, to them over the, over the years. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about um, the, the Blanton verdict. Okay, you can get in. That you missed. That, that I missed. You missed. I know. You were, you were. I was reporting. I was talking to another witness, Bobby Birdwell. Yeah, 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 yeah. who had who was going to testify ultimately in the Cherry case? Yeah. Not, not in I the know. Blanton I know. Case. I was just getting ahead of the story. Um, so, uh, I, you know, when when I was writing, I, I was surprised that I felt kind of sad about the whole thing, and I and I'm wonder, wondering what your. I know that 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 you said. You, you, your reaction when you when you got the verdict was it was looking at Bobby, I mean Tommy, and going, "Okay, now give me the finger, Tommy." Yeah, yeah. Well, that was after it came in. I was pretty nervous. I mean, yeah. we we had we had never anticipated our jury was uh, sequestered, uh -huh. and we were over in our little war room in the courthouse and got a call that the ju judge was going to let the jury go, and uh, for the evening, 
And so I walk over there, and just as I get to the security, you know, my colleague uh, who tried it with me, uh, Jeff Wallace, uh, called on my cell phone and said, where are you? I said, well, I'm about to come in. He said, you need to get in. My other colleague, Robert Posey, was right behind me, and I walked in, and Jeff said, you know, we've got a verdict. I said, no, he's just going to let him go. He said, no, we've got a verdict. And he says, all the blood just drained. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I was pretty nervous. Sometimes, you know, prosecutors think that a fairly quick verdict like that is not a good one. I mean, we were, uh, to that point, we were more concerned about a hung jury, you know, and a mistrial than we were an acquittal. But then I got pretty worried, and the court reporter kind of calmed me down. Court reporters and bailiffs have a way of finding out what those verdicts are. So I calmed down. But I had I had invited Tommy Blanton to my office before the indictments came down, about three months, to try to get him to cooperate. Uh, to, to you know, I really believe Diane that we needed some element of reconciliation that even a guilty verdict can't accomplish. Mm-hmm. And I tried to implore him to do that. He he basically, as I write here, he basically gave me the proverbial finger, not not literally but certainly figuratively when he when he walked out and said, I got nothing. Um, and so I did. I basically looked over him at that time when, when the judge asked him after the convictions, which is another interesting part of this trial because we used 1963 law. It was the jury that imposed not only found him guilty, but also imposed the sentence, mm-hmm. which was, you know, life in prison. And our jury foreman read four verdicts and was very emotional as she was reading those verdicts. The judge asked if there was anything he would say before he confirmed that sentence. And I think Blanton just said, well, we'll just let God sort it out. And as I'm looking, at his, as they're putting the cuffs on him, that's exactly what I'm thinking. You give me the finger now, buddy. Absolutely. <laughs> that was your, th- th- those were your deep thoughts. Those were my deep <laughs> that's thoughts. That's great, yeah. Um, and I remember the other thing I love about the book was that you, you turned around and looked at Chris McNair, the father of Denise McNair, one of the victims, and he gave you what you called a tired smile, yeah. which yeah. kind of sums it up, right? They were there the whole time. Uh-huh. You know, these families were amazing. Uh, Chris and Maxine McNair were the parents of Denise. They're still alive today, uh, even though they're elderly and not in good health. Miss um, Robertson was not in the courtroom at the time, but she testified. But the McNair family was there every day, and they were remarkable people. They just always had this this abiding faith in the system, that it would work. Sooner or later, it would work for him. Do you think they really did? I really do believe that. Mm-hmm. I, 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 because, I, because let's talk a little bit of just about the, the wariness of the, the African-American community in general to get their hopes up yeah. by this. Well, because, and, it's, and it was kind of translated almost as apathy. Yeah. But I, it, was, it was more like, we, this is Lucy in the football. You know, we're, we're not going to fall for it again. Well, I think that there was, there was a... Part of that is that they just didn't want to. They did. They, 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 deep down, I don't think there's any question that, that deep down uh, that the entire community wanted this to happen. But of they course, didn't want yeah. to get their hopes up. And during the course of, the, of leading up to it in the trials, we tried to manage expectations because we didn't know. I, I didn't talk to the McNair family or the other families very much. I didn't talk to my friend Bill Baxley, who had prosecuted Chambliss knowing his ties to all of this because I, 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 didn't, I had my own expectations and wanted to try to be as objective as possible and not knowing that I might have to give a press conference to say we cannot go forward. We have gotten to, the, to our dead end. Um, so I do think, but I, I think that there was that collective sigh that finally it had happened. But I really do believe that deep down uh, you just have to know them like I know them that they really had an abiding faith that sooner or later that, that justice was going to be prevailed to the ex- greatest possible extent. And I think we accomplished that for them. I don't know if you could ever accomplish it for others who may have known that you just couldn't gather all the evidence. Even a couple of the folks that died that we believe were part of that bombing or at least the bomb plot, I'm not sure you could ever gather enough information unless one of them just cracked. And we didn't have any of those old Klansmen to crack. And it's kind of amazing that nobody ever told the story. Nobody ever told the story. And and, I, and my best theory was that there were a few people who did know upper, you know, the higher level Klansmen yes. who knew about it and perhaps did think it was not going to go off yep. when, the, when the church was occupied. Um, I think that, that that may very well be correct. And you know what? And it's just like we said earlier. You know, if that's true, let somebody come and tell us. Yeah. You know, I, I really have believed, and I've talked to Blanton about this twice mm-hmm. since he's been in prison, yeah. about doing that, but he still refuses. Right. He still has this veneer on it. So, Doug, I wanted to 
say, just kind of bring this all back to your your second brush with destiny, <laughs> becoming the the savior of the free world well, by, no. <laughs> by being elected as a Democratic senator yeah. from Alabama, and um, you know, I always I think of Alabama as the moral X-ray that exposes all the broken places in the country, right. and um, I think for a long time we thought the country thought that it was the it was the broken place that didn't belong to the rest of us, right. but now we clearly see that it does, and. I just I want I wonder how, you know, the, the, there were two stories out of Hoover, Alabama, recently, which is yeah. right outside of Birmingham, named after a, a one of the major white supremacist bank rollers of, of kind of hate groups in the fifties, right. um, William Hoover, and we had the you know the shooting in the back of a of a, um, uh, a young black man, and then and then just. Recently, this tape out of from, out of a high school of these right. white kids, privileged white kids, you know, talking in the vilest terms about Jews and and blacks. And um, there, let me just we'll close because I want to read one of my favorite lines in the book. And I want to ask you about this. You said this was when you were like looking at the jury. You said it's often startling, sometimes shocking, and occasionally humbling to listen to the views of diverse groups of people from our communities. In equal measure, you end up gaining insight into why our democracy wor- works and wondering how it survives. Right. And I want to know how you can be true to your moral self, but also, you know, be true to the state you represent in some way, which, you know, has, has both of these... Well, I think every state has a lot of those, though, and we've all got diverse views in our state. And uh, I think that what we have shown in the last few years is is that while there are still those issues that are out there, uh, issues that have just kind of come up again, it seems like Alabama often will take three steps forward and about four steps back sometimes. And that's unfortunate because, as you know, there, there are people in that state that mean so well, that do so well. And, you know, I ran on a platform of making sure that we have more dialogues than monologues. And I think if we can continue to do that, we do what I have said and what I've seen in the state of Alabama, that we have more in common than we have than divide us. And I really believe that. And I believe that on issues of race, not as much on politics, but it, which is pretty tribal these days. But I do believe that on race and religion, there is a lot more that we have in common. And people are understanding that. One of the reasons that I got in this race to begin with was to bring that, to let that message be there, because we hadn't heard somebody with that message in, in Alabama politics. And it resonated, and it's still resonating uh, today. And I do think it's, it's, it's difficult sometimes, when thing, especially when things like that happen. And you see the, the, the fractured democracy that we have. But at the end of the day, you know, there's going to be some good that comes out of that, that, that high school uh, video. I promise you there's going to be some good. I'm reading things today. There's going to be some good. It's going to be awakening. We have to use some things to open our minds. This church bombing opened a lot of hearts and minds, I believe. It really woke up the consciousness, and that's what I hope comes through in this book. It really opened the consciousness of so many people in America that that we're making progress in civil rights. But when all of a sudden Jim Crow and the hate of the Klan caused the deaths of four children in a church, on a, how, a day of worship, then all of a sudden you cross that line. Unfortunately, we crossed it, and but it, it was for positive good. We made good changes, and we're going to continue to do that. Thank you, Senator Jones. Thank you, Diane. It's my pleasure. If you'd like to view other Afterwards programs online, simply go to our website at 